The Guardian. String quartets entertaining neighbours, singers harmonising from their balconies, and concerts streamed live over the internet. Since lockdown, musicians have found new ways to make music and to share it. But as the months pass, professionals and amateurs alike are wondering exactly when they'll be able to rehearse together again. It was something that had been bothering one of our more musical listeners. Hi Science Weekly. My name is Kate and I'm a professional choral singer and singing teacher. Since March, all the lessons I've given have been over Zoom, which has been pretty challenging. My choir's now back recording and giving live stream concerts, but under government guidance, amateur choirs are still not allowed to meet and almost all singing in places of worship is not allowed. So what I want to know is, what is the scientific evidence to say that singing is more dangerous than other activities? The question got us tapping our fingers and toes too. I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. The potential dangers of singing and playing instruments around others has also been on the mind of one of our colleagues, as our producer Madeline found out. Uh, hello, is that Charlotte? Hello, yes it is. If you can, are you able to record on your phone as well? Yeah. Let me just get my phone. (laughs) Which, of course, I've left in the other room. I'm Charlotte Higgins, and I'm the chief culture writer at The Guardian. Over the past few months, Charlotte, you've been following the impact that lockdown and social distancing rules have had on musicians. And although people have been very innovative... There's, of course, this strong desire to be able to rehearse and perform together again. But we're still left with the question of how risky it is. So you recently went to see an experiment which is trying to answer exactly that. But you were in a very different theatre from usual. Yes, it was a very, very different theatre setting from the one that I was used to. I... um was invited to go and watch these experiments, which were taking place in a private orthopaedic theatre. I had to get all dressed up in scrubs, which is not something that happens every day as a cultural writer, and saw this rather extraordinary scene, really, of a flautist called Susan Thomas, who plays with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. So she had two funnels that she had to play into, one very close to the mouthpiece, one at the end of the instrument, which were attached to instruments, which were being carefully sort of read by a clutch, a handful of researchers, all dressed in scrubs. Um, And sort of presiding over this group of researchers was Jonathan Reed, the professor of chemistry from Bristol University, who specialises in aerosol science. Actually, the most lovely bit was before the experiment started, she just did a little warm-up to so that they could adjust the instruments and then she, she just really kind of actually played the flute. Like she was playing Debussy and Ravel and it was amazing and she's a really extraordinary flautist. And then the experiment started and she was, uh, she was doing repeated notes and happy birthday again, slightly disappointingly. The instrumentalists were also doubling up as amateur singers. Susan said she didn't mind singing, she's Welsh. She sang rather beautifully, happy birthday, of course, over and over again. So that's what I saw. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
find out exactly what they were measuring in those funnels and tubes, we decided to ask Jonathan a few questions of our own. So my name is, is Jonathan Reed. I'm Professor of Physical Chemistry at University of Bristol. I'm part of the University of Bristol Uncover team. So this is the university's COVID-19 emergency research uh, group. So do you have a musical side as well? Yes, I sing. I'm a, I'm a tenor and I also play trumpet and, and play um, keyboards and organs. So I do have somewhat of a vested interest in, the, in this topic. <laughs> So we've just heard the study you're doing brings together your passion for music and, of course, your expertise in aerosols. So I think a good place to start would be what an aerosol actually is. Aerosols are um, droplets or particles that are, that are dispersed within a, in a gas phase. And so uh, particularly for, for this problem, when we, when we cough, when we speak and even when we breathe, we generate a range of, of droplets and, and aerosol. The droplets are quite large. They're, they're bigger than the diameter of a human hair. They're quite heavy. They, they fall to the ground very quickly within one to two meters. And that's why we, we have physical distancing guidance to, to try and safeguard against transmission through these large droplets. But also when you, you cough, speak and, and breathe, you, you generate much smaller aerosol particles. The, these are much smaller than the diameter of a human hair, typically less than five micrometers in, in diameter. Um, because they are so small, they, they don't have much mass. And so they actually don't fall out of the air very quickly. They can remain airborne for, for minutes to hours, just being circulated on, on air currents. And it's these very small aerosol particles that have become quite hotly debated. So, for example, the World Health Organization um, has been asked to revisit its guidance on the airborne transmission of, of the coronavirus. And really, that's um, because these small aerosol particles could transport the virus and, and could infect uh, a susceptible individual. So Jonathan, we have these two different kinds of droplets, the large droplets and then these very small suspended droplets or particles we call aerosols. But there seems to be a bit of a debate about how important aerosols are to the spread of COVID-19. Can we talk a bit about that? It, it is causing debate. We know that if we sample the air, particularly in, in healthcare settings, then we can detect the, the RNA fingerprint of the virus. So, so this is where we sample these small aerosol particles um, and then people run analysis and they, they find that there is an RNA signature for the virus. That tells us that the, the virus has been in the airborne phase. It doesn't tell us that it's remained alive. It also don't, doesn't tell us whether there's sufficient dose uh, in the aerosol to actually cause infection. And, and I think this is where there is a, a lot of debate. No one has yet identified or been able to isolate an infectious SARS-CoV-2 virus from an airborne sample. And I, and I think until someone does that, this debate will continue. I think at some level, viruses such as this are opportunistic. So that means they, if you like, they take their opportunity if the conditions are just right. Undoubtedly, I'm sure there are circumstances where it has transmitted by the airborne route and other circumstances where, where other modes of transmission are going to be far more important. How much do we know about the relative 
amounts of each of these droplets that you produce, for example, when you're talking or singing? In terms of when we're talking, uh, predominantly, probably more than 99% of the particles that someone emits are actually of these very small respirable particles. So in terms of number, you know, they're the dominant fraction. But of course, we, we also know that actually the volume scales with the diameter cubed. And so actually in terms of the mass, most of the mass is actually in these much larger droplets. They're, they're very few in number, but they're very large in their, their, their mass fraction. And so, you know, both the small particles are important in terms of their number, but the large droplets are important because they could carry most of the mass and that could carry a lot of the dose. Um, so we, we know something about the relative number and the relative volume from speaking. But really, when we get to activities such as singing and indeed playing uh, wind instruments, brass and woodwind, we, we don't know how how those proportions of small aerosol particles and large droplets are, are different. So there really have been no published studies. And so that's really where our study comes in. So talk us through the experimental setup here. H how are you looking at this? First and foremost, we, we have to do the measurements in a very clean environment. Um, e even though we know these aerosols and droplets are, are key to transmission, actually the number that someone generates is, is very, very small. And, and in most cases, uh, in any, for example, in any rehearsal venue or, or any concert venue, actually the number will just be dominated by kind of the, the background kind of C. We have to remove all of that background sea of particles and so that we can just be sure that every particle we detect is actually from the performer. And so we, we do that by doing the measurements in, a, in an operating theatre, particularly in an, in an orthopaedic operating theatre, where, where the air is very clean. Once we've got the space right, actually we can then sample um, the, the aerosols and, and the droplets into a device um, which counts every single particle that the person generates. And so um, actually you know, we, we, uh, we pass the particles through to an instrument where we get a light scattering signal that tells us we've seen a particle and we count those and then we can work out how many particles someone is, is generating when, when they sing or when they play. So there's this uh, issue of actions like singing producing these aerosols. Does the uh, sort of amount of aerosol produced change with how loudly you're singing or you know, does the direction you're singing in matter? What, what are the other parameters besides sort of blasting out a tune that, that matters here? We know that in the limited number of studies that have been done on speaking, that there is a very strong correlation with volume. So if you speak, if you whisper, you speak very quietly, you generate very a very few number of, of aerosol particles. If you speak very loudly, then you generate a, a large number, much larger number of aerosol particles. So for speaking, there, there is a correlation with volume. Um, our study is designed to, to try and explore that dependence from, from singing and from volume of, of someone's playing a musical instrument. In, in terms of direction and spread, really the direction and the extent of travel really only applies to the large droplets. Um, so, you know, those, if you're standing face to face with someone within one to two meters, we know that you would be potentially exposed to these large droplets, which, which follow the, the exhalation jet 
with the small, much smaller aerosol particles that where your position relative to someone is much less important than actually the refresh rate of the air within a room. So, so actually if the refresh rate, the air clearance rate is very, very low, and it's a poorly ventilated space, then these aerosol particles could become dispersed within the entire entire room and, and you know, could remain airborne, as, I, as I've suggested, for, for some minutes or hours. So we're still at the very early stages of analysing the data, so I'm a little bit wary about um, giving you what might be considered definitive conclusions at the moment. As you said earlier, the question is not only the number or volume of, of particles that one's producing, but also whether they contain infectious virus and, uh, and how much of that you would need to get sick. Are you probing those questions as well? Or is this sort of the first step to just see how much of these different types of little droplets or particles we're producing? You're right. There are a number of important questions here. And, and this particular study is just looking at, at the number um, that that's the number of particles that someone generates relative to how many they generate when they speak or, or when they, they breathe. There are other studies going on around the world. In fact, there are other studies going on in my group, which are, are actually looking at the virus in these very small aerosol particles. And for example, seeing how long it survives when it's in, a, in an airborne particle. And other people are looking at and, and trying to measure what the dose would be required for, for actually someone to, to become infected. So it's, it's quite a complex sequence of steps. I, I would just add that we're in a position where the government's adopted precautionary advice, um, and that's particularly because there have been some very high profile reported cases of transmission of COVID-19 in coral societies. There's one particular case, for example, in, in Washington state, in the US that's a study that's gone through peer review where one infected individual attended a call a union a rehearsal um, there are 60 other people in attendance and over the course of a few days after that rehearsal days and weeks it was reported that up to 53 of the 61 participants actually became infected with COVID-19 and the only way they could attribute to happening is actually through the airborne transmission of the virus and so there are some clear I would say there's some clear evidence that actually singing in a poorly ventilated space can lead to the transmission of, of the virus and, and someone becoming infected with COVID-19. So it sounds like it's early days for this research, but what's the sort of goal here? I mean, how could this help us get performances back up and running? Clearly, in terms of understanding the relative numbers and, and, and kind of the, the amount of big droplets compared to small aerosol particles, um, that, that's quite important in then determining guidance. So, for example, um, the number of big droplets, if we were to show that there are very few, if any, big droplets being generated in, in the musical activity, that then means you can look at the guidance on physical distancing and you know, the rather extreme levels of physical distancing which are currently being employed in, for example, orchestras and between singers. If the much smaller aerosol particles being generated, if they're much uh, different size to the sizes that are generated by speaking or breathing, then we'd have to consider the impact of the aerosol particle size distribution. But really all of this is about understanding the activities and, and really understanding the scientific basis that then goes into informing government guidance on, on the performing arts. 
And finally, Jonathan, what advice would you give to musicians or members of choirs who are really missing producing music together? That actually touches on on some real personal issues, which I'm debating in my mind as well at the moment, because I, I, as I say, I'm missing being involved in in musical performance. I think the, the government advice it is precautionary. There have been, as we've said, some really high-profile reported cases, which I think you know, really raise some questions about particularly safety and, and risk and exposure in certain situations. And so you know, we're working as hard as we can to really answer these questions as quickly as we can. We hope that performing music, participating music is, is safe, but we need to really be certain of that and, and really certain of how to better mitigate the risks if there are risks. We're doing our best to get to these answers as quickly as we can. Um, Hopefully we'll have some answers very soon and then then we can all get back to performing and to participating in, in music. Charlotte, has this given you any kind of glimmer of hope? There is no way that the performing arts situation in this country is going to snap back. This is going to be super long for the performing arts. There are so many unknowns about the confidence of audiences to even come back. And of course, there are grave doubts and fears about second flare-ups and um, what happens when you have to lock, suddenly lock down your theatre or your concert hall again. So it's there's no point pretending that this is not devastating. It, it is devastating. However, this work that is being done by Jonathan Reed and Declan Costello and their and their colleagues is just really, really important because it is one of the many building blocks that will help um, things start to resume again. Having facts is obviously a great first step to any kind of resumption of normality. Seeing the musicians, even in the bizarre setting of an operating theatre, sounds like it brought you quite a lot of joy so what music are you most looking forward to seeing again once live performances return, whenever that may be? Seeing, seeing them was really joyful. And, you know, I play music, I play violin. And so I have been able to play chamber music at home with my partner and one person from out with the household. You know, playing that was, it was unbelievable. So that was actually really emotional. <laughs> And the the thing that I'm most looking forward to seeing, I do, I really, really want to go to the opera again. Well, yeah, a really big, fabulous, pull all the stops up opera production. I really don't think I'm going to see such a thing for a long time, but it's what I'd really like to see just now. That was Charlotte Higgins, our chief culture writer for The Guardian, who we also hope to see weeping her way through an opera again soon. Thanks to her and to Jonathan for joining us on the podcast this week. Do keep sending in your questions. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all one word. And finally, thanks to our listener, Kate, whose choir Steely Antico is going to play us out this week. Enjoy.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.